Episode 7 of Adventures in VHS, the movie podcast dedicated to the lost format of VHS. My name is Noel Meller and this is the show where I take a look at one of the videotapes that would have once adorned the shelves of my local rental store back in the 1980s. And it's a podcast that's a way for me to fondly recall the heady days of, of home video and misspent youth that brought me to movie geekdom late in later life. But it also supports the upcoming Adventures in VHS book. For those who don't know, the book's kind of a personal journey where I delve into what the format meant to me growing up and go through 50 of the films from that era that I've been able to, been able to go out and source specifically for the project. And if you've never listened to the podcast before, welcome, first of all. And to give you a bit of a breakdown of what to expect, I would usually take a look at the history of one particular film, its respective UK VHS release, including, including the cover art, the trailers, and, and how it was put out into the world and then review the film itself. Uh, In each show, I also try to set up an exclusive interview with a special guest who can offer their own unique insight into the home video era, uh, the films that we're talking about, what the the whole thing means to them. And so far, this has meant an interview with Creepers Eyes director David Dakota, Troma president Lloyd Kaufman, VHS documentary filmmaker Josh Johnson, and legendary movie poster and video sleeve artist Graham Humphreys. But for this episode, as you'll probably have noticed, I'll be discussing 1983's Extro. And I am delighted to say that I managed to get hold of its fabulous director, Harry Bromley Davenport, for a chat about the film, how it was made, and much, much more. Um, What I will say at this point is it's an incredibly frank and honest interview, and maybe the most fun I've had on an interview for the show so far. Um, it was recorded at um, 5.30pm uh, California time, so um, that's about 2 o'clock in the morning over here, and uh, Harry was, was very open to doing the show, but he wanted to be able to do so with a drink in his hand and, and, and in a relaxed atmosphere, which, uh, so yeah, we, we chatted for a very long time, much longer than the, uh, than the interview actually ended up being. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think I'm overselling it by saying I think you'll absolutely love hearing what he has to say. He's not only brutally honest about the film and its shortcomings, uh, but he's also an incredibly charming fella and, and wickedly funny. Um, so anyway, if you like what you hear in the show overall, please, please, please leave me an iTunes review. It goes a long way. Um, and if you want to follow our feedback, you'll find my email, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all that other good stuff details over at filmrant.co.uk. Uh, so without wasting any more of your time, it's time to sit back, adjust your tracking, and join me for a trip back to 1983 for the brutal excursion in terror that is Extro. (laughs) 
So written and directed by Harry Bromley Davenport, uh, Extro started to take shape back in the early 1980s as an original script, uh, penned by uh, Mr. Davenport and Michelle Parry. Um, however, as the director puts it, it, it was uh, after that point rewritten about 400 times. Uh, it was the only film to be created by one amalgamated film enterprises, but this was done in association with the burgeoning mega studio that was New Line Cinema, uh, who also handled its uh, successful theatrical run in the US. Now, by this time, New Line had had a couple of moderate cult hits under its belt, uh, stuff like John Waters' Polyester from 1991 and Jack Shoulders' 1982 film Alone in the Dark, which is excellent. Um, but the studio was still a, a year or two away from the, the runaway success that, that would follow with A, a Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, which, of course, was the film that would see the studio uh, eventually branded as the house that Freddie built and, and set it up for spectacular blockbuster success in the years that followed, uh, right up to Peter Jackson's most recent entry in the Lord of the Rings saga, The Hobbit, uh, An Unexpected Journey, just the other week. Uh, so, with New Line head Robert Shea overseeing the film as executive producer, alongside producer Mark Forstatter, uh, a budget was put together and Harry Bromley Davenport was given the director's role. Uh, he was shipped off to the New Line offices in New York, where he would spend a couple of months rewriting the script before they actually got round to shooting the movie. Uh, although, in his words, uh, a lot of this time was spent uh, just stoned uh, and knocking around the New Line offices. Um, so the director, having also been trained as a, a classical pianist, um, evidence of which we will hear later, by the way, um, he, given that training, he was also, well, presumably that came into it, he was also allowed to, to put together the score for the film. It was something that he wanted to do and he asked to do and he was given that role as well. Um, and overall, it seems as if uh, the shoot for Extro was a pretty happy old time and everyone was kind of pulling in the right direction. And uh, Bromley Davenport has even said that there was only minimal inter interference from uh, from Robert Shea. Um, however, as the film was being made, uh, it seems that more and more ideas were kind of being thrown into the mix, some of which coming from Shea. Um, and it's also kind of said that, that that may have ultimately been a little bit damaging to the uh, to, to the end result uh, and to the to the script as it ended up there was sort of randomly inserted ideas um apparently there were there were missing pieces of linking material that weren't captured on the shoot um and these are just maybe a few of the reasons that the director has kind of branded it an extraordinary mess uh in his his interview for for the film's uh, dvd re-release a few years back uh, but again much more on that later um so the film set out to be as disgusting as possible and it's notorious for one or two scenes that back in the day were considered pretty shocking and I will say to this day are still quite powerful uh, but in the main Extro is often sort of referred to as an example of the home video era's desire to cash in on films like Alien and E.T. and it's pretty difficult to argue that Extro doesn't owe at least a little bit of a debt to, to films like this uh, visually there are a couple of cues that borrow from Ridley Scott's 1979 classic, uh, but where, where it really takes advantage of the the public appet public appetite for Spielberg's friendly Alien is is in the marketing materials that that we use to support its release. For example, if you take a quick look at the U.S. one sheet 
for the film's original theatrical release, uh, you'll see a very clear secondary tagline, uh, which is, Some extraterrestrials aren't friendly. Uh, the British theatrical quad, on the other hand, uh, goes one step further, and it uses the sort of familiar starry night backdrop of the uh, the E.T. poster um, with the tagline, Not all extraterrestrials are friendly. Uh, but not only that, it actually emboldens and highlights the the E and the T of extraterrestrial in bright red. You know, just in case you didn't quite get the connection. Um, it is, of course, not the most shameless misappropriation of, of Spielberg's iconic E.T. marketing campaign, not by a long shot, um, as there is one more film that, that does that much more bluntly. Uh, however, if you don't know what that film is, well, it's one more reason for you to seek out the Adventures in VHS book when it comes out, because it'll certainly be making an appearance in that. Um, so on to the video, then. Um, the uh, video was released in the UK uh, on Polygram Video uh, under the uh, under their Spectrum label. Um, and along with 1975's Expose, uh, which is also known as Trauma and The House on Straw Hill, Extro is... <clears throat> probably one of the most notorious British-made horror movies uh, of its time because it was one of the ones that was branded as a video nasty. Uh, however, where Expose was was one of the 39 films that were successfully prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act, Extro never even made the remaining 33 films that were acquitted and removed from the Director of Public Prosecutions list. Um, uh, you know the, the overall list of 72 films deemed likely to deprave and corrupt. This there's there's no sort of evidence to say that this was ever that this was ever listed on it. Um, yeah, the strange thing is, and I'll get into this a little bit more later on. Uh, while, as I say, there is no evidence to suggest it ever p- appeared on any iteration of the the DPP's infamous list, it still managed, uh, mainly thanks to the media attention that it got to be quite regularly referred to as a video nasty. Um, But that's not really such a bad thing, because enjoying the same kind of reputation as one of the many banned films uh, that were being talked about at the time, yet still being readily available in video rental stores, really kind of helped its success, particularly on the, the UK home video market. So we'll take a quick look at the actual tape then. Um, It's a small box tape, this particular release, which I'm less fond of, if I'm being honest. Um, The particular version that I've got here has quite clearly been labelled up with an 18 sticker and it's not not been added on later, so this is not a a pre-cert tape that's that's had an 18 sticker added on afterwards, although it does look like it's been stuck on as an afterthought. Uh, the front cover, uh, Spectrum logo at the top, and then the, uh, the the UK VHS tagline, which is not quite as powerful as the US theatrical and, and UK theatrical ones, but uh, the tagline is, A Brutal Excursion in Terror, and then there's an incredibly 80s font spelling out the, uh, the name of Extro, um, and then the giant and extremely memorable face of uh, some demonic, evil-looking alien on the front. Um, just below that, we can see a what looks like an adult and a child walking towards a very bright light. Again, that kind of looks very um, E.T. Close Encounters-ish. And right next to the BBFC logo, 
uh, we have passed for persons of 18 years and over, or passed only for persons of 18 years and over. So not only, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing this is just because 18 ratings to video were so new at this time that they felt that they had to underline it for people, but there you go, yeah, it's, it's quite clear this is an 18 certificated film. Uh, the side view Spectrum logo at the top and uh, the uh, stereo logo beneath it, extrode written down the side. Um, nothing particularly exciting apart from the uh, the hologrammatic polygram sticker. And then on the back we've got three photographs, just three photographs. Um, <laughs> the first one I actually don't recognise from the film. Um, the first one is a... It's just a, a, a mauled face with big teeth. I think it might be a little bit later on into the film when the hu the human character takes on some alien attributes, but I don't remember that. Certainly don't remember that that shot. Um, and uh, yeah, the next photograph is a dwarf in clown makeup, which is uh, is always a, a very entertaining um, idea. Um, and the third photograph is a very gialli image actually uh it's a a guy who's lay in some shrubbery and uh not that shrubbery is particularly uh gialli-esque but um yeah a guy who's kind of lay down in the woods and he's got blood all over his eyes as if blood's been pouring from his eyes and his eyes are wide open and he's got a very glazed expression on his face and he's clearly dead um yeah, so those are three photographs. They don't really give you any clue about the movie at all. The fact that there's a dwarf in clown makeup is probably a little bit like, what the fuck am I getting into here? I thought this was a, an alien movie. Uh, but I'll read you the blurb, so you, so you can get a little bit of an idea about what the story is. The night sky is filled with a blinding light. Sam is relentlessly drawn towards the beam. Three years later, Sam returns home. Things... Dot, 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 have changed. But more importantly, he's changed. And now he's come for his son. What follows is a brutal bloodbath as a rampaging alien stalks its human prey. Running time 82 minutes, approximately. Um, and thankfully it's in colour, as we're informed here. Um, I will say that blurb is a little misleading, maybe. Um, but yeah, we'll get into what the plot actually is a little bit later. Um, and then we've got the starring uh, details underneath, starring Bernice Stegers, um, starring Philip Sayer, Simon Nash, Mariam Darbo, Danny Brainin, uh, special effects by NeFX, special effects makeup, Robin Grantham, director of photography, yada, 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 um, the usual credits there. There's uh, the Polygram video logo at the bottom, and that's about it. It's not the most exciting cover, if I'm perfectly honest with you. Um, I feel like there's another version of this on UK VHS out there because this doesn't feel like the exact version that I remember from the from the the video shot walls. I will be looking into that actually to see if there's another cover out there. But um, for the meantime, this one I'll have to do. Yeah. So that's the actual Spectrum and Polygram video VHS tape. Um, after this break, you'll be hearing my review of the movie. Uh, there will be no trailer section, unfortunately, for this month's show. The reason being, this particular tape doesn't have any. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's insanely disappointing. So yeah, after the break, my review of Extro. That movie was pretty good. What? 
That movie gets an MG straight up, straight up MG material. Honey, is that Robert De Niro across the street? Hey, yo. Sure looks like him. Can't be, though. Yeah, you. He's calling to us. Let's just go. But it's Bobby fucking D, honey. Hey, yo. That's right. It's Bobby fucking De Niro over here. Hey, a lot of people don't know this about me. Yeah, I'm mingling down here with the drug dealers, the pimps, the pushers, the low-level gangsters, you know. Honestly, I'm slinging some shit myself. You may not know this about me, but I'm a fan of podcasts. Yeah, I've been listening to these guys' bloodbaths and boomsticks. A couple of knuckleheads from around the way. You got John Smallberries. What a fucking name on this guy. You got Corey G. The guy's fucking half-retarded over here. Likes John Woo, for fuck's sake. Then you got Tim Gross. He's got the movie-watching constitution of a billy goat. Hey, find these guys at bloodbathsandboomsticks.blogspot.com. Long fucking name, but just go find it. It's worth it. You knuckleheads got that? Yeah? Bloodbaths and Boomsticks. It's on The House. Tony's father has been away a long time. Now, he's coming home. Extro has returned. Once a man, he is now something more than human. Indestructible, ever-changing, evil. His mission, to avenge, to possess, to destroy. Why did you come back? I came back for you. Oh, my God. Joe! Extro, bearing powers of black magic from deep space. If you think hard about something, you can make it happen. it when you need it. Extraterrestrials aren't friendly. From New Line Cinema, rated R. So having either forgotten or never seen Extro before, and having intentionally read nothing about it before going in, um, I was actually a little bit surprised to find out that it was a British film. Uh, In the opening scene, we're introduced to a very rural English setting. Uh, We find a young family going about their daily business in the midday sun, uh, the mother, Rachel, played by Bernice Stiggers, is off out in the car to run some motherly errands, and she leaves behind her husband and son in the grounds of their lovely big house in the country. Uh, the young boy, Tony, played by Simon Nash, and his dad, Sam, played by Philip Sayer, are fooling around in the garden with the family dog, and Sam picks up a stick for the dog to fetch. Um, he hurls it directly into the air, quite strangely, and in one of the most 
probably visually interesting moments of the film overall. Uh, the stick seems to kind of shatter the, the pale blue sky and drench everything in the pitch black of, of night. Uh, there's a bellowing wind that's whipped up and lights flash in the sky and then eventually uh, Sam is separated from uh, his son Tony and uh, is, is disappears and leaves behind his, his son uh, confused and traumatised. Uh, then we cut very quickly to the present day. Uh, it's three years later and Tony awakes from a dream where he's actually recalled the whole traumatic abduction scenario and he's being comforted by his mother and her new live-in lover joe played by danny brainin um who's an american guy who it seems knew um knew the family before sam disappeared it, it transpires a little bit later on um but straight from the outset we've got a pretty interesting looking setup uh it's established what's what's happened to this family uh, it's established where things might go when Sam returns, because we know he's going to return to Earth, uh, because that's the point of the film. Um, but but what follows, it could be argued, is a little bit of a confused way of bringing Sam back. Uh, though it does give us one of the creepiest images of the films, as well as, most definitely, the, the most notorious. Uh, so first up, let's take a look at the creeper. Um, there is a flash in the sky that signals something is arriving from a galaxy far, far away, and we see something crash in the woods, setting fire to the to the whole area. We get a quick close up of something pulsating and growing, um, which kind of reveals that it's something extraterrestrial, uh, something a bit ugly and a bit gooey, and of course is soon revealed to us in full. Uh, now the truth is. It's a bloke in a rubber costume, spider walking backwards with a mask on the back of his head. But if, like me, you're able to kind of suspend disbelief just a little bit, it is actually quite effective, I think. Um, you see this sort of pale quadruped thing scuttle through the wilderness, and it's got its joints obviously appear visually to, to sort of bend the wrong way because it is somebody spider walking. Um, so because it all kind of looks a little bit wrong, um, I think it's a bit disconcerting. So it appears by the side of the roadside and scuttles out into the path of a young couple's car. And I think it's one of the, the probably the, the eeriest shots in the film. I, I still think it works. <laughs> So things have gotten a bit strange here. An alien creature, which may or may not be Sam at this point, has come to Earth and has decided for some reason to off some young couple who, who should obviously have had the good sense to drive on. Um, but it isn't done yet because uh, this creature needs a woman to rape. Uh, it probably could have had the one that it just killed off screen, but it fancies seeking one out elsewhere. So if any proof any further proof we needed that not all ter extraterrestrials are nice uh, the beast finds a, a big old house again in the middle of nowhere which is of course occupied by a lone woman who's just got out of the shower obviously um, and then we get a sort of Halloween style over the shoulder shape shot uh, which is followed by some similarly influenced point of view stuff as the extra as we'll call it um, makes his way into the house I have to say, everything at this point is shot very nicely. It's very gloomy, um, and whether or 
whether that was intentional or not, it definitely adds to the atmosphere of, of what's happening on screen. Uh, you could probably accuse the score of being a bit oppressive and whiny at this stage, but in all honesty, what happens next is probably quite enough to take your mind off that anyway. What is it? What's the matter? Hmm? Who is it? Who's there? That's right, the woman in the dressing gown is attacked and raped by the alien who uses his giant extra penis to stick a big sucker on her face and impregnate her. I don't think I need to highlight the influence here, do I? Um, but yeah, it's what appears to have happened is maybe the alien is Sam, and it's it needs to sort of use her human body to 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 become for Sam to become human again. It's a little unclear, but anyway, at this point, she she then passes out uh, and uh, awakes from her rapey slumber. Uh, shortly afterwards to give birth to a fully grown man which is of course Sam who uh, emerges from between her legs covered in placental goop and tearing away his umbilical cord with his teeth now obviously this is a key scene in the film in terms of visual effects and shock value and I have to say I absolutely loved it. I couldn't help but wonder how it had been left intact in an era where the censor was, was busy hacking up shots of pencils and shovels in the Evil Dead, but it, it, it did manage to get away with it somehow, which is great. Um, but while all of this absolutely works in terms of aesthetic horror, it really does make you wonder why the aliens of the narrative would go to all this trouble rather than just send a ship to earth to drop sam off they send some goo in a ship that crashes and grows into an alien being murders a couple of people then finds a woman to impregnate and then she gives birth to sam in his human form it's it's yeah it's it's a strange process but um thankfully we're only an action-packed 15 minutes into the film um, it seems like a lot of effort to have gone to to get Sam back into the story, but all of this stuff happens so quickly, and let's face it, it's a pretty short film anyway, that um, it's it's kind of keeping you ticking along. You know, you, you're certainly not bored by this point. It's highly entertaining, um, and and you know that said, it's it's all it's all very well handled. The uh, the camera in the uh, the birth scene um, shows just enough to make it believable. Obviously, you know, this is 1982, 83 when this film was made. Um, the prosthetics of, uh, involved in sort of giving birth to a fully grown man uh, might have looked a little bit shonky if the, you know, if, if, the, if there had been a bit more light on the scene, uh, if there had been a different camera angle, it may have looked very ropey indeed. Um, but they show enough and they light it in the right way so that it all looks fairly realistic so it's it's enjoyable for that reason uh, but while all this is going on um tony has had another dream he's woken up covered in blood and believes his dad might have paid him a visit in the middle of the night though he's not too sure about the details and where did that blood come from i don't know from you daddy sent it how did he send it 
So by now, Sam has sorted himself out. He's gone back to the bodies of the murdered couple to get the clothes of the guy that the alien killed, though it's not really explained how he knew how, how to do this. I think maybe we can just assume that he was the alien for that reason. Um, and he's managed to find, he's managed to remember his old telephone number as well. Uh, at this point, he can't really speak, but he gives his, his wife, Rachel, a call and gives it a go. Uh, after a while though he gets a bit frustrated because he's just kind of muttering at her and he accidentally melts the phone with his alienness. Um, it's not the only time that a phone is manhandled in the film and while this wanton destruction of telephones might seem a bit random it has been suggested that it's a, a bit of a cheeky pop at a certain other extraterrestrial movie that was doing quite well at the box office at the time. So, uh, so yeah I think we can let that go. Um, so, having failed to phone home, if you if you like, uh, Sam heads off to Tony's school instead, uh, and we're given a, a series of daytime sequences that are out and about in the city, which do have a particularly attractive European horror feel to them, for some reason. And speaking of European beauty, it's around this time that we're also introduced to the fabulous Annalise. Uh, Annalise is played by future Bond girl Mariam de Arbo who played uh, Cara Milovi in The Living Daylights, and uh, she is the gorgeous French au pair who acts as an occasional babysitter and general bog- dog's body for uh, for the family. Now, the bad news is her mangled Anglo-French dialogue is often a little bit, well, mangled. When he simply misses his father, he doesn't need thousands of expensive psychiatrists, only little time and care. Hold on, Annalise. Yeah, hold on, Annalise. You're rambling a bit there, love. But the great news is, she's an absolute filthy whore. And she wastes no time at all getting completely naked with some local bloke who pops around for a bit of afternoon delight while the family are out for the day. And, yeah, brilliant. The saucy continental minx. (sighs) So that's sci-fi spectacle. Check. Gruesome slasher-style horror, check. And lovely, lovely boobs, check. So, what's left? Well, interestingly, things get a bit dramatic for a while, and Sam's return causes a bit of a, a bit of a love triangle. Um, there's a pretty rough atmosphere building, and it doesn't really help that, that Rachel clearly still has feelings for, for her estranged husband. Uh, meanwhile, Tony has already made his feelings known about, about his new pretend dad, Joe, and you can't help but start to feel pretty bad for Joe uh, by this point in fact as the film goes on I found myself screaming at him to just pack his bags and fuck off Um, but no he just sticks around in the vain hope that Rachel and Sam won't start violently banging each other when his back's turned how long will you be here? well it's not up to me not long it's not up to you either please as a matter of fact it is up to me Joe because Rachel's divorcing you Joe not now but why not now everyone's here right so I have a little announcement I'd like to make. Rachel and I are going to get married. Oh, great! Thank you. I'm so happy for you. You're a crazy maniac. You're out of your fucking mind! So there's all this internal family drama going on, but it's not too long before things get all crazy and horrific again. Uh, first off, Tony discovers his dad slurping down the eggs of his pet snake's cage. 
Uh, although the snake is a male snake named Harry, so I'm wondering how they got there. Um, and yeah, so seeing this, um, Tony runs away and Sam chases him down and manages to convince his son that he can be trusted and that he just likes to eat snake eggs now. We're eating Harry's eggs. I needed them. Um, and he tells Tony that he's changed since he's been away and uh, he seals this touching father-son bonding moment by pulling back the collar of his shirt and sucking down on his neck. Do you remember when they took me? Yes. I went to another world. I had to be changed so I could live there. So this neck-sucking thing, though, it appears to be a way of transferring some of his extraterrestrial weirdness to the boy. Um, And it ends up giving uh, Tony strange powers that allow him to bring inanimate objects to life. Uh, So when Harry, his snake, is uh, brutally massacred with a a meat tenderizer by the the creepy old bitch downstairs, uh, we get that old 80s horror trope of toys versus humans. Tony decides that he's going to use his power to bring inanimate objects to life, to bring his toys to life, and exact a little bit of vengeance, um, and just keep him company while he he behaves strangely for the rest of the film. Uh, There's a great scene where the action man that he's been... Um, playing with throughout the film so far uh, becomes a life-size action man and goes downstairs and bludgeons the old lady who killed his snake to death with a bayonet and then there's also a dwarf clown that he he brings to life Uh, it's a a little dwarf clown with a razor-edged yo-yo and a rubber hammer yeah, the, 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 the dwarf clown helps him sort out Annalise. Um, you see, Annalise is now sneaking off for a slice of cock at every given opportunity, and this behaviour's not gone unnoticed by Tony. Tony, will you be okay playing on your own? I'm going to lie down for a while. You're always lying down. Ouch. Anyway, she's also been picked out by Tony and Sam as the perfect incubator for their evil seed which funnily enough is exactly what I thought when I first saw her too and there's another 20 or so minutes of complete madness involving a renegade toy tank uh, a fridge filled with goo a razor yo-yo murder and a black panther randomly and then we're into the uh, the climax and Sam and Tony become more alien in appearance and after some pretty ugly sex Rachel realises that all is not what it seems with Sam Um it's a bit too late though the father and son have wandered out into the wilderness um a spaceship arrives and they both head out into the great beyond as rachel looks on helplessly now it's here that robert shea saw fit to fade to black for the theatrical cut um that that ended up being screened in the u.s he removed the original ending that was shot by uh, director harry bromley davenport but as this is the uk vhs release we get to see the third ending that was created for the film after its initial theatrical run. So just to go through all these three endings, in the original, and I would recommend that you check this out on YouTube, as I think it's the creepiest ending myself, uh, we see Rachel return home. She walks into a big white room. Uh, We see the Black Panther once again, which looks to be guarding a room that's filled with children. There's an eerie whisper in the air of the name Tony, and then all these children who appear to be sort of clones of her son all wander over to her and start rubbing her pregnant belly while repeating the word mama over and over again. It's weird, it's unsettling, it's memorable, it's lovely. Tony. 
then you see there's the second ending because Robert Shea wasn't happy with that ending so when the film screened uh, theatrically in the US um, he had it cut so the second ending is just Rachel falling to the ground out in the wilderness after seeing her son and ex-husband disappear into the sky uh, there's an echo of thunder in the air and you can hear the birds singing as daylight is, is, is creeping in but apart from that it just fades to black now personally I, I probably would have liked that ending too as it's a bit sudden and it leaves you a bit stunned and I'm a bit I'm a fan of that sort of thing however I can imagine people in general feeling a little bit cheated by it because it is a very sudden right that's it they've gone and it's over So that brings me on to the third ending, which is the one on the UK VHS. So this is the one where Rachel returns home to a white room, again, bathed in white light. And once again, the, the panther is there that's guarding something. And it's revealed that what the panther is guarding is uh, the alien eggs that came from Annalise's uh, incubator body and were stored in the goo at the bottom of the fridge by the dwarf. If you haven't seen this film, it sounds like I'm talking complete nonsense, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, leading in, Rachel picks up one of the uh, picks up one of the eggs and stares at it, um, and it's a, it's kind of pulsating away, ba bum ba bum ba bum, and she's got this really sort of weird look on her face, and then a a big prosthetic face hugging extra penis shoots out and grabs her face. Uh, she falls to the ground, slams to the to the floor, blood everywhere. The door slams. The end. So yeah, out of the three endings, I think all of them work in a way. Um, the latter ending, the, the VHS one, was the first one I saw, and I actually did enjoy it. Um, but reading up about the film afterwards for the show, I, I found out about the second ending and, and checked that out on YouTube. And yeah, for me, that's 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 easily the best one. Each works in the, each works in its own way, as, as the film is kind of odd anyway. Um, but if I had to choose, I'd go with the original ending, which I just think is a suitably strange way to wind things up. Um, so reviewing over, over extra overall, um, obviously it's a bizarre little slice of, of early 80s genre fodder, but do I actually like it? Well, well, yeah, I do, a lot, as a matter of fact. I thought it was absolutely cracking. Um, there's a couple of dodgy performances uh, the, the the lead actress Bernice Stiggers, uh, who plays Rachel, was a bit ropey, and it really does feel like the 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 script was being put together on the fly. Um, but despite that, I think it's because there's so many wacky ideas going on, and you never really know what's going to crop up next. That that it's it's that that makes it work. Um, that's exactly the type of thing I want from a film like this. I don't want to be able to predict what's going to go on later on. Um, you know, and for that reason, it ticks a lot of boxes with me. Um, the film is readily available on uh, DVD now in the UK and the US. Um, there is a box set available of Extro, Extro 2 and Extro 3. 
um, should you wish to, to seek that out. Um, I don't know how legal this is or if it'll be pulled down, but the film actually appears to be on YouTube as well. Um, or you could just go out and find the, uh, the video like I did. But um, yeah, so it's readily available, and if you want some visually exciting, fun, gooey, and occasionally, occasionally pretty scary and weird sci-fi horror that's a little bit rough around the edges, then you should definitely give Extro a spin. Domestic dwellings are terrorised by killer beds and satanically possessed appliances. There is a place where nations battle for survival, whilst tasty geezers with shooters and football hooligans run riot upon the streets. There is a place where the underdog strives for sporting glory, whilst hitmen and vampire motorcycles go on curses of bloody revenge. There is a place where Nicolas Cage punches a bear in the face. The name of the place? The Crash and Burn Movie Podcast, of course. www.crashandburnmoviepodcast.co.uk Be there and listen to us waffle on. You may be entertained. Okay, so you've heard me talk a little bit about Extro and its 1983 UK VHS release on Spectrum and Polygram Video. And now I'm thrilled to be able to say I'm joined by the film's writer-director, Harry Bromley Davenport. Hello, Harry. Uh, I, I am thrilling. It's, it's true. I'm, I'm immensely thrilling and thrilled to be here. I'm this thrilled. <laughs> That sounds thrilled. I'm liking that. So first of all, I need to say thanks very much for joining me today um, to talk briefly about Extro and then some other things. Extro is is it's a film that you've kind of you've been very open about in the past about how you feel about the uh, the film itself and you've kind of described it as reprehensible in one interview. Um, (laughs) What exactly is it about the film that you feel doesn't work at this stage? Oh, God. Well, um, there are many things that don't work about the film, but I, I've, I've, I've grown with the, with the years to become more fond of it, um, largely because of people like you who say nice things to me about it. 
and and uh, so I've been compelled to to change my opinion. It is in fact a masterpiece, with a flawless masterpiece. Next question. Well, one of the things that kind of strikes me about about the film um, and sort of oh, like having struck. That's good. Absolutely. Well, th- this is this is not technically the the film actually, but what struck me about the marketing growing up. Uh, is it is one of a number of films that sort of uh, tapped into to, to a hunger for extraterrestrial stuff around that time. So I was wondering, was a lot of the marketing sort of referenced extraterrestrials and stuff like that? Was that part of the brief going into the film, or is that something that just kind of developed after it had been made? No, you see, we we, we were we were very young, and and we just wanted to shock people. And so I got together with a, a, a friend of mine, Michelle Perry, who, who's a real writer, unlike me, and we, we, we put together this, this thing and we had some, some nasty ideas. And the whole idea was really uh, to go, to do something which took off where Close Encounters of the Third Kind ended, which was, if you remember the first Close Encounters, it ended with these people showing up off a spaceship or something and they've been away for a million years or 40 years or something and um, what I wondered what happened to those people you know I mean did they become dope dealers or what what did they do Um, and so it was partly that and and it was partly that we all wanted to make a movie this was extra was actually my second the second film I directed the first one is is, is so obscure that no one's ever heard of it, it should have been a better film. And it wasn't. And that was my fault. Um, and um, I, I, I wish, with every film that I've directed, I wish I were able to tear it down off the projector and re-edit it or go back further than that and reshoot it. Um, it, it uh, I, I was I was not happy with the film when when we finished it. Um, it it just I just thought it looked awful and it was not what I had in mind. And the thing that distressed has distressed me most since then is that people have called it kind of campy, uh, and they've sort of I I have had people. Um, like the French, who get very excited about such things, uh, refer to it as being like Chapeau Moulin Bout de Cuir, which in English means the Avengers. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and why? I, I don't know. Uh, because that was all shot in sort of pastel, and it, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it just means it looks crappy or something. But I, I was not happy with it, and, and um, I... Uh, I just didn't do, I don't think I did a good job, you know, sometimes you finish something and you just feel you haven't done a good job, there's about, I've directed, I think it's 11 feature films now, and I would say that there are sort of two or three there where I didn't do a good job, some of them I did a good job, you know, I, I wish I'd had more experience. So is, is, there, is there one sort of specific thing that you would... Uh, I've heard you mention before there was a lot of ideas going on at the time when the film was being made. D- did that have a bigger role to play, or was it just that 
the script changed quite a few times or no i should have been more daring and i should have now in retrospect i realize uh, that i should have stuck up for myself more you know okay but the film was being funded by a, a, a what was a sort of fairly big and became an enormous company uh new line cinema in america and um it it was you know i i was the first time i'd had the experience really of working directly for you know this enormous place overseas and uh it was uh, all a little bit scary you know and when the when the head of the company comes over and takes you out to dinner after the shoot when you're exhausted you know and says how much he hates what he's seen which bob shay did uh i he said i i don't like your leading lady i i don't uh, the cinematographer isn't helping you um um i can sell it i can sell shit i remember him saying i can sell shit and he said um you know tomorrow you're shooting these scenes with uh mariam darbo and uh, i want to see a bit of tna you know i mean it was that kind of level strange because bob shay of whom i speak is is actually quite a cultivated guy who i got to know a bit later on but he was apparently always horrible to directors even when you know when he became a really big shot you know i i i i didn't have the ammunition per, the personal ammunition to stand up to to that um i was heavily protected by the lovely uh, producer an expatriate uh, uh, american uh, uh, who lived in london lives in london now called mark forstadter and a, a very kind um uh, production man who is one of the one of the associate producers called james crawford who pro- uh, did the same job on chariots of fire uh, and we got these incredible people working on the film you know because it was it was a period of time when there wasn't much work around um but they protected me from this from this stuff but it was a bit it's a bit scary you know it's a, even it was a low budget film it was a million dollars yeah you know? but a million dollars then you know i mean that's hey i'd like to have a million dollars now to make i don't think i did well and i i should have done better So you met you mentioned Bob Shay as well and did, there was um because the the version that I've seen on the VHS tape has uh, a certain ending that was uh, that was filmed afterwards and Bob Shay had an issue with the original ending and and yeah. chopped it off a little bit and what was yeah. the story there how did that how did that happen Well, well what they what they uh, yeah, we we uh, we um finished the film as 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 best we could um and uh, we shipped it off to new york uh and and uh, the the word uh kind of came back you know well yes we we've tried it out we we we've it's been in times square and all this stuff and that was rather exciting uh but uh, they don't like the ending uh, we got to put a new ending on so we said well we we we've we've given you an end. it actually does end you know and they say well we don't like that one so um they sent us i i think we asked for 
7,000 pounds, so about $10,000 or something. Uh, and and uh, we didn't know what to do. And we, we had a powwow at Mark Forstatter's office, and uh, uh, there was a wonderful fellow called Christopher Hobbs, who is a production designer and terrific. He worked for Ken Russell and everybody in the world. And he just has an idea every 13 seconds, Christopher. Um, and and um, he's sketched out all sorts of stuff. And um, we, um, we filmed, this, we went into a studio for a day and the, the effects guys came up with some funny things, you know, some disgusting stuff to do at the end, which was totally meaningless. And our lovely editor, Nick Gaster, uh, who also is is is, is 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 a very well thought of man, put this this rather surreal ending together, of which I totally approve. I th I think it's fine, the 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 redo of the ending. I I couldn't care less. I, I well I could care less, but I think it's rather cool, you know, because it is actually Bob Shea. You know, for I, I don't want to knock Bob Shea because you know he, he he and Mark Rossetto they gave me they gave me this this opportunity, um, and Bob Shea gave us the opportunity for American distribution, which was enormously important in getting the film set up. But Bob Shea always urged me, even at, right at the beginning of the, of the film, when I went to New York uh, to work on a, a redraft of the script. He always urged me, be off the wall, you know, which, which in America means be, be wacky, be insane, do, do these crazy things. And interestingly, the one thing which I still don't understand in the film is there's a, a, a panther, a black panther, which shows up and kills someone, and then it shows up at the end for no reason at all. And uh, uh, Bob came up with that, and it was a deal breaker. You must put a Black Panther in this film, and it must jump out and do something. And I think that that, along with a number of other incoherent things which happened in, 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 in the film, that helped it to have a kind of mysterious, surreal style, uh, which was not intended at all, uh, but which it came about because of general incompetence and the brilliance of our editor, Nick Gaster, who put all this rubbish together and, and made something out of it. Because I, I've been told it's, it's, you know, it's this surreal thing, and now thinking of it, because I can't stand looking at it, thinking, thinking of it, there are all these things. There are some things I really hate. I hate the whole business about the toys coming to life, the clown and the, yeah, every, every blooming movie, independent film under the sun has a clown in it now, you know? And that, that I didn't like, but it, it was thought by minds greater than mine that it was, you know, they had to impose a story, you see, on, on, on this mess of pages. And uh, the clown was part of it, and there we go. So, I mean, just to move things over from the US over to the UK, um, the film uh, the film itself, was it was never listed on any of the 
official uh, director of public prosecutions video nasty lists but it was sort of it was it was it was kind of tarred with that same brush um, and it, it's, it gets a mention in, uh, in Mark Morris's book, uh, The Art of the Nasty, as one of the ones that got away. I was just wondering, how did it feel to have your film sort of lumped in with all these other films at a time when the media was just going crazy about, about you know, video nasties and what they were apparently doing to people's minds and stuff like that? It was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. I... I, I couldn't have been more pleased. We were all delighted. Uh, and sales, you know, the lines increased around the theatres where it was still playing. Was, you know, films played in theatres in those days, too. And, oh, my dog's just come in. Uh, and, um, uh, no, it was wonderful. Sales roared at, 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 at that point. That was the best thing that happened to the film for the UK. Absolutely. You know, to, to, to be to be um, castigated in that way was very good news. And rather like, uh, the, you know, the, 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 there were people on the, you know, Committee for uh, Un-American Activities, you know, in the 50s, 50s in Hollywood, uh, I, I, uh, who were banned from working because they were thought to be communists and things. Uh, and I feel rather like those, but I failed to get onto the list, you know, official list. But we were sort of on the unofficial list, which is almost as good, really. Actually, it makes us rather special, doesn't it? I think it makes us even better. Absolutely. And, and how did you come to find out that, or, or how did you come to notice that um, the film was being put into that category of video nasties? Well, the, there was, there was a, 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 a great revelation I had one evening when I, I was sitting at home and I was watching the news. Uh, there were diddling, ding, diddling, you know, the nine o'clock news is some idiot. And um, uh, uh, up he comes and he says, look, here's this, 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 this serial killer has been caught. You see, some guy who was running around lopping people's heads off or doing whatever he was doing. And uh, they said, look, here he is, and, and he's been arrested, and isn't it great? Uh, and then they said, let's look inside his house. And then they showed this, his living room, and there was a huge wall of videos, like a video rental store, you know, right up to the ceiling, you things. And the cat, the news camera zoomed in to the center of this wall. Right? And there it was, the dreaded extra, right in the middle. And you can't do better than that, the nine o'clock news. Sales rocketed into the stratosphere and someone got rich, not me. So I mean, it was when it did come out in the UK. It was uh, it was passed uncut by the BBFC in 1982, and it also yeah, and it also had it had a decent run at the cinema. And then when it came to home video, they they didn't cut anything out of it there either. So I don't know. Is is there is there? I mean, do you kind of think? to a certain degree are there scenes that you can think of where you think how did we get away with that when so many other yeah. films were getting you know caught under the knife so to speak yeah the, the, there's one scene which was central to the to the story of the film where uh, 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 
some poor unfortunate uh, cast member gives birth to a fully grown man, which sounds impossible, but we somehow managed it, and Philip Sayer, who was a wonderful actor, did it, and, and it, it, we did a day of rehearsal on this thing. It was the first time, that, the first time in the history of independent film that rehearsal has occurred, and um, we, because this was this was fairly complicated for us, but now that that that, that um, it was a scene she sort of swells up, you know, suddenly. You've seen her <laughs> being raped by an alien three minutes before, and then she goes into her kitchen for a glass of water, as one does when <laughs> raped by an alien. Yeah, you know, you want to get the taste out of your mouth. Absolutely. You know? And. Uh, she goes there and then pop, 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 bang, wallop. She starts swelling up. And uh, we did this thing in this huge, it was staged like a stage event. Uh, we had multiple cameras and things, and there were all these contraptions everywhere. It was all rather exciting. Um, and it, it really is, that's in, in, in very, very bad taste indeed. Um, and uh, we, we did get away with it. I don't really know how, um, but we did, because the film would have been, we would have had it if, if we, I don't know what we would have done uh, had that been cut out, because it was central to the story that this, this uh, woman give birth to this, this man who has uh, disappeared some years before. And, comes back in the form of an alien la-di-da and I don't know, I can't remember. It was such absolute rubbish that we somehow, we somehow justified it. When you've been talking to other people about Extro, you have kind of described the movie-making experience as something that you're not a fan of. Is it fair to say that you're a reluctant filmmaker? And if so, what is it that kind of keeps you coming back to filmmaking? Well, I don't like shooting. Okay. I don't, I don't like shooting. I like the whole thing of, uh, you know, developing it, developing the script, getting the cast together, uh, uh, planning the whole thing. And I like the editing and the post-production and, you know, trying to cover up your mistakes and that sort of thing with clever editing. Uh, but. But um, see, the trouble with shooting is you have to get up early in the morning, which is not good. There is an advantage, though, and that is that filming generally comes is accompanied by bacon sandwiches. That's a plus. The rest of actually shooting is horrible. So, I mean, without wanting to sort of dwell too much on the negatives, uh, I did want to... to uh to ask you a little bit about the uh, the second film in, that, that you followed Extra up with, uh, Extra mm-hmm. 2. Okay, it sounds like you, you know, despite your reservations about the first Extra film, you did kind of, uh, you did kind of enjoy your time on the set. However, with well, the second film, it wasn't quite the same experience? No, it was very different. Um, it was very different. Uh, um, I, I was, uh, I needed a job and there were some people who, who wanted to do a sequel to Extra and good for them, you know, uh, but uh, 
it was a very stressful thing. And um, I, again, I had a, one of the producers say to me one morning how much he hated my work. He said, I don't like your work. You're slow, and you're this, and you're that. And I'm, these were people who had been making softcore porno movies who wanted to move up. If I would say it would be moving sideways to do extra two, but you know, so he said, I don't like your work, and I remember him saying that. God, wow, thanks, you know. Uh, and they didn't sort of follow the uh, idea that we were we were doing a, a, a professional film here. This is the real thing. I I don't know. I didn't I didn't like it. They didn't like me. The producers in general, and uh, there were many many producers on that, and it was some sort of attack shelter thing, and I don't know what. And it, it was it was uh, not it was not a, a happy experience. I had a girlfriend from Los Angeles who was calling me up all the time and screaming at me. Uh, I was it was it was a it was a you know, and I was very insecure. I was in Canada shooting the thing, and they were lovely people in Canada. The, 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 the crew was great, you know, the crew was great. But but we never had an interesting script because it was the the story was completely derived from one of the producer's favorite films, which which rightly, which is uh, the Ridley Scott first. Alien, and he wanted really to remake that, um, and you can't, you know, you, you can't on a million dollars, and you can't because I don't have Ridley Scott's talent, and you can't because we had five weeks to shoot it, and they had whatever they had, 12 weeks, and then all, all that, and uh, they had talent. <laughs> So, Extro, the first film, was around 82, 83, uh, and that was right in the middle of the home video boom. Uh, and then the second and third Extro films came along in the early to mid-1990s when DVD was emerging. And your most recent film, um, American Grand, will be arriving in a world where we don't just have uh, theatrical releases, we have DVD, Blu-ray, digital, uh, streaming, video on demand, that type of thing. So I'm just wondering, how do you feel the distribution model has changed and is it now easier or harder to get a film made and marketed? Well, it's a, it's a difficult period right now because we've just been through this financial crash and all that and it's sort of ongoing. But I welcome a world where the middleman is cut out and that middleman is the distributor, and in general they take most of the money because distribution of films is a, 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 a proper business model. Making films is not. Making the filmmaker usually does doesn't doesn't see much. It's the distributor who who sees who sees the the money. So I welcome the, the, the time when it's possible to cut out these thousands of middlemen and agents and so on. And, uh, but of course, those are the people who know business. So uh, it's, 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 it's difficult, you know, it's difficult. I, 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 don't, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. I wish I did. 
um, and I think I'll make a big noise. Which brings me beautifully on to uh, my next question, um, which is, as, as we just kind of touched upon, uh, American Grand is the, uh, the new documentary feature that you've been working on. As I say, it's a documentary feature, and this is about piano restoration, which is probably just about as far away from extra as you could possibly get. Um, so, like many people may not realise, you were, you're actually trained as a classical pianist, and so is this... Is this? Is it fair to say this is a, a labour of love? Is this something that's been brewing for quite a while, or is it just? Is that group of people just a group of people that you stumbled upon, or? Well, no, they're the people who look after my piano. Right. Uh, and um, uh, I, I, I just wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. I mean, there are many things I, I want to do, um, but. Well, I'll tell you something that I've really loved about this little foray into documentary stuff is that you don't have to worry so much about makeup. You don't have to worry about is the catering truck there? Uh, has the leading man gone mad? Uh, do I, All those things, they don't exist. So if it rains, it's a rainy day. Yeah? Um, and it's wonderful. And, 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 and of course... It, it is it is a labor of love and no one will want to see the damn thing because it's 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 about piano restoration you know who cares about that uh, funnily enough the cool thing about making documentaries if you is that I've discovered thanks to the internet and the, these these newfangled inventions is is that you can reach a niche audience much better you know uh, and it, uh, our little documentary cost very, nothing, very little to make, and so it has very little to recoup, you know? And so that's a joy to have that problem removed. Um, and, and, and it's a thing that was entirely, as you, as you suggest, made from, for, 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 for love and, and interest, yeah. And it was very nice to be able to join up my filmmaking, my vaguely vague abilities in making films, with with um, uh, my failure to be a concert pianist. Yeah. Mm. I think one of the things that I've noticed uh, just through seeing just a little bit of the film. Um, it, oh, did I send you a bit? Indeed, yeah. There was a, there was a six-minute section, which is kind of a, a, an elongated oh, trailer. Yeah, and it's. Oh. I think one of the great things about it is the strength of a documentary. Really, is that if you have interesting characters and people who are likable and warm, then you immediately. It doesn't matter if it's something. I mean, I know nothing about piano restoration, and then you know to 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 be in a room or, or feel like you're in a room with people who love what they do and are nice people, then that that's going to pull you in anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, it could be a film about making electric irons. Yeah. It, it, or it doesn't make any difference, does it? it? It's really about the people, and if the if the person who's watching it knows something about pianos a little bit, yeah, then that's a little bit more fun. But it's more about the people and how they behave and 
the dramas and silly things that occur. Yeah. So is this like, because obviously this is a documentary and the, the three to four, actually four films that you did uh, before this were all sort of either sort of uh, inspired by a true story or based on a true story. Have you kind of intentionally sort of moved away from the fantastical elements of filmmaking and tried to do something a bit more? Does it just feel right to do something more based on no, reality yeah, now? Yes, I, yeah, I did m- move away from, from fantasy films uh, uh, because I got interested in, in these... Uh, dramatizing these extraordinary things which which you read about in the newspaper or stuff and then you research or you find out about and, and that I, I I found somehow it it, it was somehow more valid to me um, that that doesn't mean that I now having been through that period which yeah I, I, I got I got I definitely took a change of, of path at, at that point but I would I would love to do another another extra but I've had a devil of a time getting a script together and we've, we've, we've had been through about three or four or something scripts and we can never quite get it as outrageous and, and, and appallingly fantastic as I would like it to be also what encourages me about doing another extra is that we have all these new media and these these uh, it's 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 easier to you know get rid of the mental man and and hopefully uh, if if i do and i would like to but i just and uh, people are always asking me about this and throwing themselves at me to do it but we can't i just can't find something that i really really think is so outrageously interesting and amusing or funny or cynical or I don't want to do something disgusting you see I think that that's sort of old-fashioned um, to be disgusting I mean I don't for instance care for what I think is known as torture porn or I call it torture porn which would be stuff like the saw films I've, I saw the first one of those which started terribly well, I thought, with those two people in that bizarre space, which looks like an abandoned public lavatory or something, and and they're tied up and they don't, they're chained up, they don't know what's happened, and you think, whoa, this is going to be interesting, and it is for a bit, and then it degenerates, it degenerates, it's a disappointment, it was a disappointment because it went down the slope. You know, and somehow they had to explain everything at the end. And there's a bad guy, and what? Uh, and I don't, I don't care for torture. It sounds like you've not ruled out the possibility of an extra four, anyway. So I'm pretty sure there'll be a lot of people that'll be happy to hear that you, you certainly entertain the idea, anyway. So. Oh, good, because it would be lovely to be able to make something, and then. You know, to be able to sell the DVDs or do the streaming thing or something on the internet, uh, so that you know this whatever lunatic idea, we will do it. Uh. And it'll be an extra for a new generation. So I think we can all look forward to that. Um, 
so yeah I guess all that remains for me to say is a massive thanks again to you Harry for, for revisiting <laughs> the dreaded extra you yeah <laughs> um, so yeah thanks for revisiting extra for adventures in VHS as well um, <laughs> yeah. and it's marvellous this website that you have it's terrific I'm glad you've enjoyed it yeah it's, it's, it's a lovely thing to be able to do because it, it gives me the chance to sort of speak to people like you who are kind of quite important to people growing up even though you even though you pour score on it there's uh, plenty of people that grew up with that film so um so yeah thanks very much again for joining me and uh, i think i can speak for everyone on, on saying whether it's documentary features or whether it does happen to be an extra four i think we wish you all uh, all the best for 2013 that's very sweet of you thank you so much including big mistake <laughs> so how about that eh? what a guy um, Harry Bromley Davenport there as I'm sure you'll agree a cracking interview there um, so that's about it just uh, a bit of time left to go through some feedback that we've had for the show and uh, yeah first off I'm going to go to Facebook where I was uh, left a little bit of feedback from Carl so hi Carl if you're listening uh, this is uh, from Carl and just thought I'd stop by with a comment I love this idea of the book you're writing and the accompanying podcast I was starting to think I was on my own about having such an affinity for certain horror flicks from my childhood until I started listening to this podcast there's so many I remember and I didn't get to see them until I was an adult I just got a copy of one I remembered seeing a lot called Ghost Town from 1988 I hadn't even thought about it probably for 20 years, but I literally had so many waves of memories come back when I saw it. Another awesome one was The Dead Pit from 1989. Uh, I was a little older then, 11, but I remember being blown away by the fact it had green blinking eyes built into the case. I'm still trying to track down a working copy of it. Anyway, good luck with everything, and thanks for the memories. I look forward to every episode, and I'm glad I'm not the only one out there reliving my youth through the horror movie VHS boxes I started at in video stores as a kid. Cheers, Carl. Thank you very much. So, yeah, you're absolutely not alone because there's a lot of people out there that feel very much the same. There's an awful lot of men and women of my age that, that grew up in the same ways that we did renting from video stores on this side of the pond and over in the States and, and in Australia and doubtless across the, the rest of the, uh, the movie-watching world. Ghost Town does have a great cover. I've not seen the um, I've not seen the film itself. However, I love the fact that like you actually attached a, a picture of the uh, of the poster. It looks like there, and it's got the uh, the the price there for retailers at seventy nine dollars ninety five, uh, which is cracking. You also mentioned um, a film called The Dead Pit. Now, just let me have a look over here. Where are we? There we are. Yeah, I um, it was my Christmas do recently and all uh, as as with many works christmas do's um everybody is is assigned a secret santa 
and the gifts are left out on the uh, the table of the Christmas do and you open them all at the same time and it's all very nice and there's a five pound limit that's given to everyone. However, what you'd normally expect to, to receive from something is, so from someone who you know may or may not know you very well, is probably a pair of socks or maybe, I don't know, some cheap aftershave or a five pound iTunes voucher or something like that. It became very clear to me when I sat down that my, my, my secret Santa gift was a VHS tape. So I, I took a look at it, it looks like a, a small box VHS tape, this, wonder what's going to be inside. I figured it'd be a joke gift and somebody knowing my football in association would have given me something like 100 great Manchester United goals or something like that. But I opened it up and uh, yeah, the dead pit on VHS. So that's quite the coincidence. Uh, I haven't got around to watching yet. But, as it states on the front, from the director and producer of The Lawnmower Man, so it can't be all bad, eh? So that's The Dead Pit. I will be checking that out soon. I will let you know what I think of it. And and, uh, and apart from that, thanks very much for the feedback, Carl. The next bit of feedback is from Jonathan Hinson, who resubmitted his feedback after I forgot to read it out on episode 6. Yeah, so let's have a look here. Uh, Greetings, this is Jonathan again from Raleigh, North Carolina. Let me start by saying that hearing everyone's VHS memories on the last uh, Adventures in VHS episode made my week, and I'm glad I got to contribute. That show took me right back to 1988. I'll not waste any more of your time and jump right into my questions. Number one, VHS boxes. Not the box art, but the packaging itself. I got the urge to start collecting and I noticed that 90% of the tapes I'm finding here in the States are enclosed in cardboard slipcases, as opposed to those fantastic small clamshells cases you keep posting via Instagram. After some internet research I've learned that the clamshell case was the standard everywhere else, especially in Europe, but never really caught on here in the US. Most of the clamshell cases I'm finding are Disney animated titles. Do you have any slipcases in your collection and do you consider these a lesser grade? Well, I'll address that first of all, actually, uh, Jonathan, before I continue. Yeah, do you know what? The, uh, in the sort of the VHS collecting community, I don't think that in general um, slipcases are considered lesser, but probably to some they are. To me, they kind of are. I really don't like them. In the sort of pre-cert days, there were certain labels that, that put out cardboard slipcase covers over in the UK. I know CIC video was one of those. The only slipcase VHS tape I have in my entire collection is um, Airport 80, the Concord, which is a pre-cert tape that I managed to find at a house clearance place, um, which I bought for 5p, would you believe? So, uh, yeah, so... Um, but in general, they I wouldn't say they're rare in the UK, but they... They weren't. It wasn't the norm. Not by not by a long stretch. Um, basically, there are three types of casing. There's the slip case, which, as I say, not exactly rare, but not exactly prolific. Then there's the small box VHS clamshells, which are generally the um, the retail uh, the retail one. So uh, your small box stuff is is the stuff that came straight out on sell through uh, in general. However. Back in the early 1980s, there were some, again, there were some labels that, that put out small boxes um, as well. So I'm just looking over here, like Embassy. Embassy Video was one of them. A lot of their releases came out in uh, in small boxes. Uh, Thorny MI, their VHS tapes came out in small boxes. Uh, occasionally RCA would put out small boxes. Uh, Orion, uh, what else have we got here? Avatar. 
I do have a small box Vestron, but I think it might have been cut down. Uh, CBS Fox and, and Spectrum actually as well. The the extra case that I'm looking at right now is uh, is a small box release. But what I prefer, I have to admit, is the old big box ones. So the majority of e- the the majority of rental tapes in the UK were all sort of big boxes. So. You know, I could list a million of them either, but the, the, I prefer those. Uh, those tend to be the ones that you get embossed cases with as well. So, um, you know, to just to grab a, a, a one a entertainment in video release here, you pop it open and there's a nice embossed entertainment in video logo on the inside. So that's that's the dream. What you want is you want a bunch of big box videos and you want them all to have the right embossed sleeve because unfortunately that doesn't always happen when you buy these things so I mean like for example I'm looking at a, a Warner home videotape here and I pop it open and it's got a CBS Fox logo on the inside and it just it hurts my soul um, but you know that's life so um, yeah so there's your, uh, your VHS boxes anyway question number two VCR tech talk do you feel that the only way to correct uh, the only correct way to watch your tapes is to have them played back through a tube to tube TV do you think the scan lines of a tube TV help hide the imperfection of the tape? If so, do you connect the V8 VCR via a coax cable like it would have been in the mid-1980s or via RCA cables? I ask this because I recently connected my Hi-Fi VCR deck to my 1080p LCD and it took several adjustments to the TV import, aspect ratio, colour balance, etc. before it looked presentable, whereas I thought it looked much better played back through a nice tube TV via the RCA jack. Have you sought the most advanced deck possible to play your takes, or the most vintage deck possible, or do you think that stuff even matters? Do you have a deck for both PAL and NTSC titles? Have you attempted to archive any of your takes by capturing them to play back on a computer? I apologise if I've gone on too long, but these are the types of thoughts I obsess over while sitting in my office at work. I know my wife has already told me that I have a problem, so I'm very curious to hear from someone who is far more versed in VHS than myself. Well. I'll be honest with you, yeah, I do kind of think it's important, and one of the first things that I did when starting this project was go out and source a video player I was happy with and a uh, TV I was happy with. I'll talk in more detail about the process of that in the book and what I ended up with, but suffice to say it's a tube TV that I've got uh, in in this room here, in the uh, the analog suite as I call it, and I have a, uh, a, VC, a VCR which is... You see, the problem is, if you go out and you get a vintage deck, finding one that's in perfect neck isn't always easy. And if you find one that's in absolute pristine neck, neck, then it's kind of a collector's item. What you're better off doing is getting one from the latter end of the 1980s that is a little bit more durable than the ones that kind of came out in the 90s. So... What I've done is I've kind of I did research it. I spoke to a number of people on the forum about their sort of preferences and stuff, and I went out and I got the right deck for me. However, uh, I don't connect it through uh, through an old school coaxial cable. I connect it through a SCART, um, and uh, because the tube TV is sort of a late 80s model and the VCR is a late 80s model they both have SCART connections and that seems to work just fine I have yet to try and connect my video player to the living room I don't see any reason to do it really to be honest with you I, I the problem the first first problem is the aspect ratio really I mean I don't want to watch something in a video aspect on my big widescreen TV it's 
Uh, it just doesn't look right. Um, which, you know, I, I it kind of leads me on to the question about sort of capturing playback of stuff uh, of VHS tapes to archive. No, I'm not interested in that. The, the, the whole, you know, I enjoy coming into this room, thumbing through a bunch of tapes, picking out one that I like, popping the tape into the player, and sitting back and watching them on a tube TV, on a video, in this room. That's That whole experience for me is a big part of it. It's not about, you know, I, 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 I can't see any reason why anybody would want to digitally watch something that was from VHS, unless that film was completely unavailable. Um, so no, I, I certainly wouldn't be doing anything like that. Do I have a deck for PAL and NCSC titles? At the moment, I only have a PAL deck. Uh, however, I think I am going to need an NCSC deck because I uh, I just bought that, that a VHS copy of um, the Miami Connection, which came out on Draft House Films, which obviously came from the States, so that's going to be an NCSC um, uh, tape, I would imagine. And so it probably won't mail, it probably won't play on uh, on my deck so I may need to seek one out, but it will probably only just be so that I can watch that particular film. Um, so yeah, I hope that's answered your questions. Uh, I look forward to hearing your thoughts, and as always, I can't wait for the book to come out, but then I have this awesome show to look forward to each month. Later, Jonathan Henson, Jay Henson on Twitter. Thank you very much, sir. He also includes a link to vhscollector.com about packaging. Um, I shall check that out. Thank you very much, sir. And the final piece of feedback for the month uh, comes from Jonathan Clayton um, in Charlotte and Charlotte NC, let me think, NC, is that North Carolina? I'm going to say North Carolina. Yeah, it is actually, because Jonathan Hinson's also from North Carolina, okay, right, so uh, this is from Jonathan Clayton, and he says, Hey Noel, I wanted to say how much I love your podcast, it's nice to relive some of my fondest memories of cruising around the VHS rental store when I was younger. I'm not sure if it was universal or not, but I love the way the video store displayed whether or not a movie was in stock for rental. Each VHS box had a little hook underneath it that would hold a little disc with the number on it, and if there was no disc, then you knew it was out. At 32 years of age, I blame this little video rental store obsession with horror movies and specifically 80s horror. It has to be because my parents would usher me quickly by the terrifying box art and tell me not to look. One box art still stands out today, The Company of Wolves. That had to be the most terrifying cover art for a preteen boy. It's still unsettling. Great podcast and good luck with the book, Jonathan in Charlotte, NC. So it seems I'm quite uh, I'm quite popular in North Carolina. I don't I don't know why, but that's great. Um, so thanks for that, Jonathan. Um, the VHS rental store thing I've never heard that before. Um, what tended to in in my local video shop, basically, I think the um, the tape wouldn't be on the shelf if it was if it was out. I think. Um, and then in later years, what they started to do was they had this sort of little piece of card uh, that's, that they used to stick into the sort of plastic part of the sleeve, and they'd just kind of stick that in, and it'd say something on it like, this this movie is out on loan. But yeah, I can remember instances where we'd sort of reserve a film, and then we'd go down to pick it up, and the guy who guy or girl who'd rented it the night before hadn't brought it back and stuff like that. So, oh yeah, horrible, horrible memories of that. So, thanks again, Jonathan. And uh, I guess that about wraps up the show. Feedback, if you uh, want to email me, you can do so, noel at filmrant.co.uk. 
if you head to filmrant.co.uk you can also find uh, links to my Instagram profile where I regularly post uh, tape covers and, and whatever it is I'm doing and yeah my Instagram my Facebook my Twitter my YouTube all that other good stuff um, you can find on filmrant.co.uk as I said earlier, earlier, if you want to do anything for the show, then an iTunes review would be fantastic. It really makes a difference. Getting high up on the iTunes page, I've seen how, how much it can, it can impact downloads. So um, please, please, if you do get a second and you haven't done that already, feel free to do that. Uh, the music you have been hearing in this last segment of the show is by the one and only Harry Bromley Davenport. And it is an extract from Chopin's first shirt. So, so um, thanks to Harry for the interview. Thanks to you for listening. I will see you in the new year. So with that in mind, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you all. Uh, Adventures in VHS will return in 2013 and hopefully so will the book at some point. If you want to find out how the book's going on, you can also head over to filmrant.co.uk uh, where there's a bit of an update on there. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Thanks very much for listening. So